Hey there, this is Meg. I'm your host, and you are listening to Mental Status, a podcast about burnout for people in the mental health profession. Quick disclaimer, because you know that stuff is important these days. Uh, Mental Status is a podcast about burnout in the mental health field. It's for entertainment and educational purposes only. This is not therapy, and this is not clinical supervision. There are no CEUs associated with this podcast. Enjoy it and share it as you will. And if you're in a space where you're needing deeper support, please seek out therapy or supervision for yourself from somebody who is qualified to provide those services for you. Okay, here we go. Today's interview was with Susan Rogendorf, a licensed clinical professional counselor in Illinois and licensed mental health counselor in Iowa. In our conversation, we talked about how Susan came to realize that she was burnt out, how that affected her mental health, and what she did to aid in her recovery. We also talked about the need to break down the archaic rules that keep us working in systems that burn us to a crisp. And we talked about how important it is to be there for each other as colleagues and community as a way to fight burnout. I really loved having this conversation with Susan, and I'm sure you're gonna love it too. So without further introduction, let's dig in. Okay, welcome everybody to Mental Status. My name is Meg, I'm your host. This is a podcast about burnout for mental health professionals. And I'm joined today by a super cool, super special guest. And I wanna make sure that they can introduce themselves. So special guest, who are you? Where are you? And how are you doing today? Hi, my name is Susan Rogendorf. I actually live in the Quad Cities in central United States. Um, I live in a community that spans both Iowa and Illinois. Um, so I'm dual licensed. That's very helpful. Um, basically, I see persons with anxiety and usually accompanying that is also self-esteem issues. And from there, of course, it isn't just always about anxiety. There's usually other attendant issues that kind of go with that. So we pretty much explore anything the client brings to me as long as it's something I feel comfortable that I've been trained or certified in. If not, we have a conversation and we figure out what our next options are. So how am I doing today? Actually, like I said, I'm, I'm doing pretty great. I had a good self-care day yesterday. Um, and then this morning, I had a really great self-care morning. So I'm actually doing really well this weekend. But thank you for asking. Yeah. And I'm curious. So what do you, what do you typically do for your self-care days? What does that look like? For me, uh, if I can get some time, it's either reading, Mm -hmm. which I love to do. Um, and not just work reading that's for the weekdays. I keep fun reading for the weekends. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like to knit. I've been knitting for quite some time now. Uh, I also tend to want to visit with family and friends now that I'm out of burnout mode. I can actually have the energy to participate in relationships again. So that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then I also have a phenomenal massage therapist that I go to once, twice a month if I can manage it. Uh, and that just really helps a lot. So it, between those three things, one is more meditative with the knitting. Um, the energy building is from the relationship. And then the massage is just about, you know, letting my body relax from the week's accumulation of stress. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I love a good massage. I cannot lie. Like, and I don't get them very often, but there's actually, so where I live here in Indiana, there's a massage school that opened up like 40 minutes away from me and they do a 90 minute massage for $50. 
grab it while you can because yes. they're, they're getting experience also in you know doing the massage techniques that they're doing but yep. if you can get it for something that's fairly reasonable within your budget range i highly recommend it yeah um, mine is a hot stone massage mm. for an hour it's 120 dollars, which is why i have to kind of budget things mm-hmm. but it's worth it it is so worth it because that is the type of technique that works for my body and the issues that i have with it medically so yeah absolutely yeah. I'm glad to hear that you have, have access to that too. That's, that's super you. cool. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of nice. Yeah. So, um, here's the, the big question that I start most of my guests with, um, what is your, what's your burnout story? Where have you been with burnout? Uh, burnout happens in just about every field I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never had it as severe as when I became a mental health crisis counselor and working in an ER setting. Mm -hmm. And because of the hours I was working, which was 12 hours overnight, have that time usually on my own. If I was like, you know, I had a peer support that was able to answer phones while I was busy with clients and patients and an RN to help with the patients as well. Mm -hmm. But it was a situation where you're covering multiple campuses across two states for telehealth, as well as persons coming into your own ER. Mm-hmm. You know, at first it was fine. I can handle this. I've worked overnights before, never had an issue, but I also didn't factor in my age at the time. It was before I turned 50. Mm-hmm. Um, there's medical issues. I, you know, I have diabetes. I have a heart condition. Um, I have high blood pressure. And I didn't take that into consideration with the hours I was working. And then from there, it just sort of went downhill the longer I was at that. Mm-hmm. high intensity, high need, several things not being in place to support really well the work we were trying to do. Yeah. At one point, my blood pressure was so bad and my, my chest hurt so that my nurses that were actually on my unit that night said that if I didn't go walk to the front of the ER and get checked out, they were going to call a code on me and have me dragged out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I walked out there and got hooked up to all the machines and everything else. Luckily, nothing too terrible, but things were not good. And as I'm laying there listening to the beeps and everything, I thought this has to change. I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. So, but part of that is when we talk about burnout, I don't know if you do with your clients, but with some of my clients, it's also about, even if you don't like the position you're in, even if the job is really, really stressful and you're suffering burnout, there are other attendant issues that keep you from moving on. You know, people are like, if you get a job, quit it. Well, sure, you're going to pay my bills. You know, um, right. maybe I have health conditions. I need those insurance benefits. I have student loans that I'm trying to qualify to get some of it relieved of my debt for putting in time at a nonprofit, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. But then it gets to a point of, well, matter if I'm dead. So I think maybe I need to adjust what I need to do. And at that point, that's when I really started looking into private practice and deciding what am I going to do? And it wasn't, it wasn't until I I finally cleared out of what I was doing full time in the ER as a crisis clinician and started private practice that I now acknowledge I was also battling depression for most of that. Um, I had a weight gain of 70 pounds Mm -hmm. um, and I slept all the time. Family and friends were worried about me because I isolated, but I also didn't have the energy to deal with them. I was only sleeping four hours a night, even with medications. It was just not good. And it affected me physically, effectively emotionally. It affected my relationships. And you talked about that in a previous podcast with your Mm -hmm. significant other. 
Um, in the meantime, you know, I, my grandmother had passed, who was a very prominent figure in, in my life, so much so I named my business Coke Out Counseling Services for her in her maiden mm-hmm. name. Um, then, you know, my dog, best dog ever, was a basset hound that I rescued. And unfortunately, she got very sick and I had to put her down in the midst of all this. So it was accumulation of things that it was worth putting in 18 hour days for almost two years to get into private practice. Oh my gosh. Between working full time in the ER and then part time in private practice so that I could move forward with that goal. And I could say two years now that I've been in private practice for the majority of my time, my burnout is significantly, significantly reduced. Mm-hmm. Um, still having some issues, but you know, I'm, I'm working through it. So that's kind of how my personal burnout story came about. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm thinking about what you were talking about with working in a high need sort of crisis situation, you know, the long hours. Um, I know I would, I had talked with somebody else on the show previously about, you know, the way burnout shows up physically. And I, I have had clients who have described you know, they're not necessarily in the mental health field, but they're in helping professions mm-hmm. describe having cardiac events at work because of workplace stress and not even realizing that their work was affecting them that badly until they literally like their body stopped them and said, this is not happening anymore. Like you're not going to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's scary to think about, especially like as a younger clinician, thinking about wanting, wanting to be able to do this for most of my career, if not the rest of my career, having to consider like all of these, all of these ways that burnout can kind of sneak in and, and kind of get us without us realizing it, unless we're getting really good at recognizing like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, burnout for me means that I am irritable and tired. And, you know, maybe my depression or anxiety gets worse and, you know, I have physical symptoms too. Um, and I just, that wasn't something that was described in depth to me during my program, um, during some of my earlier jobs, like we just didn't talk about that stuff. So I think it's important to talk about, and it's also just a little scary to realize how, how big of an impact it can actually have on us. And you're right. It happens in a lot of helping professions. I see it in police officers. I see it in the EMS ambulance. I see it with uh, the staff of the ER. Mm-hmm. And I know that you and I had a prior, prior conversation where we had talked about how it affects all of us in those professions mm-hmm. and what it means when we are part of systems that perpetuate this. Yeah. And that's part of the difficulty too, because we are part of systems that, because we are trained professionals in these helping fields, whether you're a social worker out in the field with SAS, if you're in the ER as a crisis clinician, an ambulance driver, police officer, ER personnel, there is the expectation that because you knew what you were getting into, you signed up for this, that you are going to magically handle this as a, as a human being being removed somehow, like we went through this humanectomy to, you know, make ourselves these super helpers that Mm -hmm. don't need any kind of downtime, that don't need additional support or mental health support. And that's kind of scary because you're in the system that you're earning your money from, 
but you can't get the additional supports that you need, or it's seen as a weakness in some of those cultures to ask for help because there's this expectation, once again, stereotype of you don't need help because you're the helper. And that also fosters that burnout. And then we, we take that in and we make that something we expect of ourselves as well. Well, you know, like I said, I refused, I refused to acknowledge I had depression until I was out of it a year. And I was working with my therapist who finally said, are you ready to, to finally talk about this? Mm-hmm. And finally, you know, I broke down, I cried. And I said, yeah, I am because I just, I'm so tired and I feel so alone. Yeah. And that's why I, I like your podcast. You're bringing something, a subject that we talk about amongst ourselves, but it's not talked about in our professions. We get compassion fatigue lecture, I think for most of our type of trainings in our education, whatever, whatever part we are in the helping field, mm-hmm. but we are not told about burnout because I think they're scared. They're going to scare us off and to be quite honest with you. And they don't want to put us off because we are in such desperate need that we are all understaffed in the helpers, everything from teachers to social workers, to police officers, we're understaffed. Mm-hmm. And yet because of the way the system is designed, you may be understaffed, but you're going to take on twice or three times a load. You're going to do, here's your paperwork. Oh, by the way, we need more paperwork for either funding or regulatory reasons. Yep. And you don't get any extra hours to do it. You have to do it in the time frame you have of your shift because we can't afford to pay you overtime because of the way we're funded. Yep. It all perpetuates that burnout. And mm-hmm. we don't get the full story of what is waiting for us when we get out into these fields if we don't take good care of ourselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I remember one of my um, supervisors and professors in school talking about being a, uh, a crisis clinician working, you know, I think either on a hotline or in a department, maybe at an ER. I don't exactly mm-hmm. remember where. And hearing, hearing him talk about how he did that for a few years and reached a point where he could not do it anymore. And at the time it was just so conceptual to me, right? Like I had I had, I had no idea what that actually meant to reach a point where you literally can't do that anymore. Um, and at the time I remember it being like, well, you know, but yeah, but then you went back and got your PhD and now you're a professor. So like, obviously it's okay, but there's all of that, that subtext and the things that we don't hear about, you know, I, the one thing that I talked to a lot of people about is I had, I didn't even have a good concept of billing codes through grad school. I didn't know what the hell those were until I got to my advanced internship. And they're like, oh, you know what this billing code is, right? I'm like, no. Not a clue. (laughs) I have no idea. Um, So there's like, there's so much of the business side of things. There's so much of the the general impact it has on the person doing the work. And I know that grad schools, they only have so much time and they have their certain things that they need to comply with, especially... Mm you know, based on what type of degree you're getting, you know, for me, it's KCREP accredited, right? Like mm-hmm. they need that specific set of curricula to make sure that they're doing what they got to do. Mm-hmm. And so much gets left out. And you, I mean, a lot of the people that I've talked to, it's like baptism by fire. You learn while you're on the job and you get thrown into it. Um, in a lot of these like associate level, pre-license level positions. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people would they may reconsider working in this field um, 
if they don't, if they're approached with this concept of like, you're going to burn out mm-hmm. without being able to talk about it and saying, okay, so when you burn out, because it's probably going to happen, here's who you can turn to. Here's how you can talk about it. Here's the support that you can find. Um, yeah, I just, I really found it was my, for as good as my graduate program was, it was lacking in that area. I think they all are. Uh, I, yeah. I graduated with mine in 2013. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about it. We still don't talk about it is in a general sense of any kind of the support that you get in most of the work environments now. Mm-hmm. That's difficult because yeah. then you think, well, again, you are now buying into that misconception of, you know, you're weak. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing, you know, yep. or you're not doing it right. Or you're doing you're doing something that is putting too much pressure on you because you shouldn't be assuming those responsibilities. But then there's a part of you saying, well, if I don't assume those responsibilities, how do I properly care for my client or my patient? Yep. I have to do those things. It's about advocating for your patient or client. It's about making sure they get appropriate treatment and get handed off to the next level treatment that is for them. Yep. So you don't get that information in grad school. You don't get it usually in your internship because they're kind of hoping that if they allow you to intern with them, you'll stay on the ship with them and, you know, continue to help bail, Mm -hmm. which works, you know, because I don't know why we continue to accept that that's the normal. Why? I don't, I, it's that, it's that thought of, it's been fine for these generations. So the following generations are just going to have to, what was the phrase? Suck it up, buttercup. Yeah. And that's just the way things are done, which is wrong because I, I don't want anyone as a Gen Zer to suffer in the next generations behind me through the burnout I went through. I don't want it to be as hard as it was for me. And I don't understand. No, I do understand because persons who really have to struggle and work to get to that point may feel resentful that if someone gets a break and gets to it in an easier way, and they're still dealing with the anger and the resentment of the burnout and having to do more for less. Mm-hmm. So I get, I guess I get where that comes from, but it's, it's difficult to try and change that mindset. Burnout yeah. is not supposed to be normal. No, not at all. Um, I mean, it's, it's a normal response for the abnormal way our work lives are uh, present and operating in our lives currently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I've had conversations with people where, you know, I, th- I think with you and other folks where burnout was absolutely 100% an issue before the pandemic, um, it was magnified, you know, because a lot of people felt, a lot of people in the helping profession, there was all of a sudden this like elevation of you are heroes, you're frontliners, you're doing this good work. We need you. You're, you're super important, which is all true, but there was not, there was no increase in um, benefits or pay things that would be commensurate with the level of work that people are putting in to help other people through this mm-hmm. um, therapists as well, you know, mental health professionals, I haven't really heard of many folks in our field who said, yeah, as a result of taking on more and more clients and having a bigger caseload, they gave me a pay raise and more PTO. Like I have not, I haven't heard that. It's, it's not happening. And, and for folks who most of us had to bring the work home quite literally, 
that in combination with what you were talking about before of like, there's this mindset around, we shouldn't need the help. We've, we have the tools, so we should know perfectly how to use them for ourselves and be this like steady, calm presence for everybody and never have any issues. I mean, for me, it created this whole storm of like, Hey, what the fuck? I'm also in a pandemic. I don't know what the hell is going on. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to help, but I'm also feeling like incredible anxiety, health, anxiety, fear for the people around me, Mm -hmm. especially in the early days. Like we didn't know what the hell was going on. And I mean, when, when the pandemic started, I was working with families who had children with really challenging behaviors. And now all of a sudden they were all at home together. It, it was a whole new level. Um, and, and that's something that like, I've done a lot of thinking about in what you talked about before with those mindsets that people have, because it's not just like between colleagues or between a supervisor and a supervisee where there's this idea that, you know, you should just, just handle it on your own. I found that there's also generally a a social response as well, where it's like, well, you're a therapist, you're a therapist. You should like, aren't you the one who's supposed to be good at this? Aren't you the one who should know how to handle it when you're stressed out? Like I said, you had suddenly had the humanectomy where you're just the super professional. Yeah. You don't have a human response to the things that we are witnessing or we are hearing and taking on that stress level too of trying to help our clients or patients work it out so that they're less stressed and they can cope better. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of take that with us, even though most of us go through some kind of decompression phase, either at the end of the day or the end of the week where we try to shed a lot of that stress. So we're not, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm starting to get anxious just talking about this because I remember how bad it was. Yeah. And that's, you know, um, was it the, oh Lord, I can't remember the name of the book by uh, Vanneker. Um, the body marks, the body remembers. Yeah. It's the trauma book. And I, and I, and I have just completely blanked on that. Uh, the body keeps the score. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and And that's true because even talking about the memories and that of the way it is Mm -hmm. still affects me. Mm -hmm. It's okay. All right. I'm here and I'm (laughs) safe. This is the context I'm in. This is something I have to work with my clients too, when they're dealing with their burnout, you know, and dealing with the social pressure on top of the professional pressure that is really stress making. And Mm -hmm. then it's trying to figure out what am I going to do? Well, for me, it was hiding. If I don't have people that, you know, are perpetuating the stereotype of this is what it means to be a helper and how you're supposed to have your shit together all the time and not be affected by human events around you, even outside of work, I'm just going to stay away from everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, it sounds very much like a protective function. Um, Yeah. That's what I would say to a lot of the people that I work with, you know, even if what you're doing on the outside seems unhealthy quote unquote, or seems bad. Like you're literally trying to protect yourself in the way that you know how at this point in time. And so if that means keeping yourself away from people, then that's what that means. Um, you know, you can, we can work on finding other ways, but like, don't, don't shame yourself for using the tools that have worked for you or are working for you. Yeah. The only problem with that is it it fed into my depression. Yeah. You know, the more I isolated, the worse it got. And that's where you have to figure out where that fine line is for people when you're dealing with burnout too. 
yeah. is you're going through burnout, but what other attendant emotional issues are going on that is affecting your mental health? Mm-hmm. And let's figure out if this is, you know, situational depression where it's acute as opposed to the chronic, um, maybe single episode and just kind of figure out how we're going to handle this better for you. And right. when you're in the helping profession, it's difficult to acknowledge you need help because again, there's that expectation you can take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. There's that expectation you yourself can take care of yourself. If you admit that you're having problems, mm-hmm. then it's a sign of weakness or a sign of you're not doing it right. And I think actually the latter is more important to us, those of us in the field that we're not doing it right. And right. that may be affecting other persons. And I think that also is kind of scary for us as well as professionals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, feeling as though having your own professional and personal concerns, feeling like that is going to create more problems for you because you're feeling like you're not doing the job right. Or, you know, we've, we've all been told about burnout that, oh, when you're burnout, you're going to, you're going to damage the client or harm the client. And there are absolutely situations where that can happen. And I think talking about it in that way reinforces this idea that we, we can't be open about it. We can't talk about the struggles that we're having because others will look at us and say, you're no longer competent. You're no longer doing the job correctly. You got to go. And again, like there are definitely situations where somebody, somebody probably should take Mm -hmm. a step back and take care of themselves. Um, I don't think that most burnout cases get so far that somebody has to leave the profession or leave the job, but there's such a fear around that, that perception that we're just flat out bad at the job, or we're not going to do it correctly. If we are experiencing fatigue or, um, you know, our, our symptoms of depression are getting worse. Yeah. You know, and with those perceived ideas of it within a culture sometimes of it being a weakness if you need help then there might be things that are done that are punitive towards you you know um, taking away certain responsibilities putting you in a different department um, making you take off time even if you don't have saved time up so then it hurts you financially Mm -hmm. and then not also extending you know there's the EAP that can help you or there's this that can help you but then there's concern with EAP that if I'm talking to somebody within the company, I'm not ready to tell them everything because I know some of that might get filtered back, even though there's HIPAA in place. Right. We all have that in the back of our minds because yep. things slip out. Um, even if people are really staunch advocates of HIPAA and try to be very careful about that, but you're always leery about what if it happens? What if it just happens to slip out? Right. Um, because that's something you and I deal with as professionals. And I, I am very, very careful mm-hmm. about what I do for my clients and protecting their privacy. It's the least of what I would expect myself. But then that EAP professional is part of your organization. How is that going to affect how they view you? So you got all that stuff kind of wrapped around the whole, I'm burning out, I need help, but I don't dare ask for help. And that just adds more fuel to that fire, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. It really is, yeah. Yeah, it, it adds fuel to the fire. And I think further entrenches some folks in the idea that they just need to do it on their own. They need Mm -hmm. to figure it out on their own. 
Um, and I, you know, I've been in workplace situations where I'm not disparaging my workplaces. However, I did notice trends of the sort of upper level management or the people who are in charge, not necessarily doing the clinical work or doing the supervising would, they would hear concerns from coming from the bottom up, you know, bottom Mm -hmm. being all the people doing the actual clinical work Mm -hmm. concerns around um, caseloads and the manageability of the work and the paperwork and things just not feeling sustainable. Mm -hmm. And they would come back with, you know, these little sit down sessions and they'd talk about like, well, we're so appreciative that you're here and let's all talk about our why, why are we here? Why do we do this work? Let's just remember how grateful we are to be here doing this. And, you know, if, if anything comes up, um, we'd be, we'd be happy to talk about your self-care plan with you and what, what you can do to make this more manageable. Um, and oh, it, by the way, here's a pizza. Exactly. Yep. Pizza we bought lunch for you today. It's great. Enjoy. Here's some candy too, or like a little personalized gifts. Mm-hmm. And then nothing would change. Nothing would change. In fact, at times it would feel like they would put more on our shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would just, I just remember feeling up, up to, and at the level of being infuriated at times, like, this work is not sustainable. And, you know, there's, there's a prevailing thought and idea of like, well, some people just aren't cut out for the work. Like, how about maybe you're the work that you're offering may not be suitable as a job in general. There needs to be better bounds around what is expected of the people doing the work. Um, but I always, I always felt kind of held back from saying that stuff being, you know, an associate level working towards my independent license. Didn't really feel like I had a lot of leverage in those situations, mm-hmm. feeling like I should just be grateful that I have a salaried position where I'm working toward my hours and they give me free supervision mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z. It's just, yeah, there's a lot of um, sort of mental, mental flips that you have to make. I, I think mm-hmm. there's a phrase mental gymnastics that you go through to try to make it feel okay for yourself. Exactly. And, you know, and and I'm not playing devil's advocate, but I understand having worked at administrative support about how we are funded in a lot of these organizations and companies and mental health is the least funded because X, Y, or Z pick your, Mm -hmm. pick your reason it's out there, but it's underfunded. And so with the underfunding, that means you have to go to other sources to accumulate that funding because a lot of what we do is a nonprofit, which means we can make enough to meet our needs for our bills and things like that and have a small enough amount to produce new programs that are needed in our communities Mm -hmm. and the needs of our community. Um, The problem with that is we don't have enough to pay really well for enough people to take on that huge caseload. So therefore we're gonna ask you to take on that caseload, but we don't have any extra funds to give you more benefits or more pay, but we're gonna need more hours from you. Um, and by the way, we're going to start a new program and we don't have staff, but you know, you guys will help out. And then also you're not gonna drop off your on-call because we don't have anybody to cover the overnights. Yeah. And that's difficult because as I was, I was talking to my kids this morning, 
part of the reason we get into this profession for a lot of us is the fact that we have this a sense of calling, this passion for what it is we want to do. And for all the burnout I've gone through, I still fucking love my job. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I'm still PRN as a crisis clinician. I love my crew. Mm-hmm. There are still some difficult nights, but I, I only spend a very finite amount of time now so that I, I really limit any kind of chance of burnout from there. Mm-hmm. In my private practice, I love working with my clients, but there's still that part of you that when things are going bad and you can feel that building up, it's like an abusive relationship because it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Oh my God, there's 16 more pages I have to fill out. What do you mean I have to change all my billing codes now to there's this one person, a patient, a client, a family member that says genuinely, thank you. If it, if it weren't for you being here with this service, we would have nothing left to do. And we, and we are at the end of our rope Mm -hmm. and you think, okay, that's why Mm -hmm. I'm here. And it rekindles that passion, that calling in you. So you keep dumping more energy into it and then it builds up and builds up and builds up. And then again, somebody says something that confirms that you're doing the right thing. Yep. And it just, (coughs) excuse me. It's just, at a certain point, you ha- realize you have to get out of that kind of relationship and figure out something different. Yeah. And in the meantime, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to meet your student loans? Where are your benefits at? How can you afford benefits? So, <sighs> you know, it all boils down again to how are you going to keep body and soul together? We're not asking for a lot of money. And I can, I can guarantee you, I'm not making a lot of money at private practice. But the fact that I come home at night. And I now sing on the way home again. I, yeah. I haven't done that for years until I went into private practice where I have enough energy and I feel really good at the end of the day. I don't come home angry anymore. And I am now getting to the point where I'm reestablishing my friendships and my relationships with my kids and my family members. Mm-hmm. So the payoff to me is in those things, not just the fact that I can, you know, I got a roof over my head. I got clothes on my back. The fat girl's got her taco money. I'm pretty happy with that. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out what that balance is, but I know that I'm fortunate because I'm a white female. Yeah. So I have an advantage over those persons who may have other disadvantages and other societal obstacles for persons of color, for those of us that are marginalized in the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I identify as cis female and I present as female. So I don't have that onus on me as well. So I don't have those additional obstacles to get out of the situation I was in to find something different. Yep. So, you know, I'm fortunate. I'm very fortunate. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, I, I, the reason I like having folks like you on the show is because you have kind of going back to coming from an administrative type level, it's good to have folks who have done both, you know, boots on the ground, clinical work and been in administrative roles. Um, you know, and thinking about what you're saying, that that speaks more to me to that larger systemic problem, as you said, around the the respect and the funding that is given to the mental health field in general, mm-hmm. um, not just from within agencies, but you know those larger funding sources. Um, there there is that expectation that we'll be able to do more with less because. 
leading into the next point, because it's a calling, because this is something that many, if not most of us feel called to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, for me, it is a calling and I agree with you. Like I, I love, I love the work that I do 99% of the time, you know, the work that I do with my clients, it's fantastic. And I, I love every aspect of that, even in situations where I feel challenged by what's being brought to me clinically, that is what I'm there for. And that feeling that you get when a client says like, yeah, I, I've had a few clients saying, thank you for you, you helped save our family or thank you for, um, for just listening to me and, you know, getting the validation from you has been super important for me to setting boundaries or doing things in my life that I want to do. That's that intermittent reinforcement where it's like, yes, yes, this is why I'm here. I love this. This, this is the calling. And then there's all that other bullshit around notes and like filling out paperwork and, you know, like depending on the setting that you're in all of the regulatory stuff and the billing codes and dealing with insurance, it's all necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I, I love and kind of hate the idea of the calling because there is that really good aspect and that beneficial aspect to seeing it as something that you are, you know, just internally motivated to do. This is something that gives you fulfillment. I also feel like at times it gives others this sense that they can take advantage of that purpose and passion. Like, yeah. well, you, you love this work, you know, you'll be, you'll be fine. If we give you another client, you, you know, you'll be fine. If we give you more paperwork to do, this is, you know, talk about your ultimate why, you know, and, and that'll drive you to getting through these 16 pages of paperwork that make you feel like you want to rip your fucking hair out. Um, <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> at that point, you're asking why the fuck am I still here? That's <laughs> exactly. my why. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and yeah. you're right, because with all that paperwork and everything else, you start figuring out ways. How am I going to handle this? Yeah. I have no problems meeting my patients and clients. Love yeah. it. But oh my God, do you know how much paperwork I have to do? I have to spend three times the amount on paperwork and time than mm-hmm. I do with my person, my patient or client, which it should be the reverse. Right. Yep. Which is what has been really, really nice. Um, have as as I've moved into a group practice, the paperwork by and large is the progress note. There's, you know, case notes that I need to enter. Um or termination, you know, the patient is discharged and by and large, that is most of what I do. I don't, I don't have all of the other stuff that I've done in previous jobs where there's the weekly report and the monthly report and the X, Y, and Z that comes with this very specific model that we're using that every single client has to do because they're referred through probation or the Mm -hmm. court system. Like even thinking about the paperwork, I'm like, oh my gosh, like get me starting to break a sweat. Yeah, because I'm starting (laughs) to break a sweat. You're just talking about it. Yeah. It's all it's so much. Um so yeah, I I appreciate the perspective of talking about, you know, you coming from that admin type level, understanding what it looks like to not have the resources that you you probably would very much like to give to the people doing the work. Um, and how that all just kind of, it just creates this whole big cycle and systemic issue that when I think about it, it feels so big in my mind that I don't even know what a starting point would be to manage that. I think, again, talking with my kids this morning, um, my daughter was talking about how 
it also seems to be with the helping profession, most helping professions, it's about being women geared. Yeah. It's a woman's profession. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we're automatically supposed to do even more because right. we're nurturers. We're compassionate more than men, which is a little shit um, because I've met plenty of men who are just as compassionate. It doesn't have to do with gender. Um, Now that thankfully more and more gender roles are getting broken down in all kinds of helping professions from police and EMS and ER personnel to the mental health field, um, it's kind of perpetuated into you'll just take it because you're also female. Right. Which is, you know, difficult, you know, and I have to, I have to agree. I mean, because for those that are dealing with that kind of pressure and you're female in that field, mm-hmm. if you're seen as not doing that, it's seen as you're not a team player. Yep. It's seen as you're a difficult woman or IE a bitch mm-hmm. um, or a person that is unreasonable or mm-hmm. you're emotional. Mm-hmm. And in this day and age, we're still talking about that, which is unfair. And there is no ultimate why when you're being faced with that too. No. It's, no. It, again, it's why the fuck am I doing this? Yeah, This exactly. is what I'm going to be facing all the time. Yep. Um, and that's not to take anything away from, you know, also those other, what used to be gender norms of male professions in the helping mm-hmm. areas. You know, they're now females. They're now who have an additional pressure, I think at times to perform even more to prove that not just because they can break the gender barrier, but that they can be just as good as if they mimic what was stereotypical gender behaviors, you know, right. the stoicness, you know, and I'm not going to show pain and I'm not going to be weak because that's an emotional girl thing. Yep. So that all plays into that burnout that we're dealing with too, in addition to all the paperwork we have to do. Yep. Yep. And, and with those uh, traditionally female roles within the helping professions, um, not only are we expected to um, take it, as you said, but I've also mm-hmm. experienced take it and say, thank you. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for this chance to be fulfilled in my calling. Um, even though, you know, more and more is being placed on my shoulders and the shoulders of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for the opportunity <laughs> to, to do it, to do it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, being seen as, um, bitchy or, you know, uncooperative. I have people that I work with who they struggle so hard with setting personal and professional boundaries because, you know, female identified folks, because they, they're worried that people will see them as being rude or unkind or selfish. It's bad to be those things. Um, It's bad to be seen as not always giving Mm -hmm. to others. Um, and I, I think for a lot of, a lot of folks who do identify as female or who've grown up with those more traditional stereotypes around what a woman, a female is supposed to do. It's so ingrained into some of those core belief systems that to even question that feels scary mm-hmm. to question, you know, do I have to always say yes? Will that actually make me a rude person or a difficult person or a bitch, or someone who, you know, mm-hmm. can't be part of a team. And, it, and, and part of that too is the guilt we assume mm-hmm. for those of us that are female or identify as female. 
Mm -hmm. is the fact that if we say no and we set that boundary, a lot of us will sit there and go, what if I just, God, I feel bad because of this, that, and the other thing. And if I just do this and it's a slippery slope because then pretty soon you're back into that role again, that is contributing to your burnout. Yeah. And it's trying to figure out, I have, I have no obligation to feel guilty for saying no because it's too much and I don't have the resources to provide it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I'm sorry. I really can't do that. Yeah. And even then it's, those words are just, it's interesting because when I talk with colleagues or friends or family that are in helping professions, it's how do I say this without coming across as being negative? Yep. <laughs> Yeah. How do I say this and not feel bad about it on the two days off I have in 14? Yep. And all I tell them is where in this, do you feel it's an obligation for you to nail yourself to some kind of wall as the sacrifice to whatever job it is that you're doing? Who told you that's obligation for you to do? I, I want to see your job description where it says, okay, Susan on Tuesday, the 14th of her third year is now the designated sacrificial person that we're going to put on the wall and bleed dry mm-hmm. for all of us who don't have enough. And she's going to be the sacrificial victim yep. because that's what you're setting yourself up to be. You're sacrificing all of this. And, and then a lot more than just yourself suffers. Mm-hmm. Because if you're burned out, your family won't get you, right. your friends won't get you, and you won't be there for your colleagues who you're desperately trying to help out anyway. Yep. So Absolutely. that's part of it is figuring out why do you think you have this obligation to be the sacrifice and try to get them to change their point of view of, I'm not helping to, what am I, what am I giving up so much for and for how long? Yeah. And what I've noticed in myself and with colleagues and people I've worked with is um, this underlying feeling that we're only useful or helpful when we are helping, right? We're only worth something if we are giving to others. Um, Our our biggest worth comes from being of service to the rest Mm -hmm. of the world. And, you know, by and large, most of us want to feel worthy. We want to feel like we are valuable to the world. And if we've grown up or been in relationships or professional situations where we are ultimately praised because we give more of ourselves than we actually can, Mm -hmm. that just serves to to reinforce this idea of, I am most valuable to this world when I am giving all of myself Mm -hmm. and to, to not give all of myself and to take from, take some for myself um, ultimately it makes me less valuable, you know, less, less worthwhile. Um, I might get passed over. People might see me as this, that, or the other, and that's too painful for me. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do something that is equally painful, but I know it. And I know that it makes me feel more worthwhile, which until the burnout gets so bad that you can't participate anymore. And there goes your self-worth yeah. because you're unable to participate in that area of helping that created that sense of self-worth. Yeah. And if that's been the majority of how you feel about yourself being worthy, you know, therein lies a lot of tears and frustration and loss for your identity. Yeah. Yeah. If there, if there is so much poured into your identity as a helper that when you reach the point, if you reach the point where that's no longer an option because of 
um, mental, emotional, or physical reasons, um, when that goes away, that creates a huge void. You know, if there hasn't been other areas of your life that you've simultaneously built up outside Mm -hmm. of your work. So time with your friends and family time, socializing time in the garden, time spent watching true crime and you love it, whatever Mm -hmm. the hell you want it to be. Um, if your whole life is focused on that and it goes away, like you said, that's, that's, that's a major loss. That's grief. Mm -hmm. And, and then you're dealing with the grief process as well. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really fortunate, Meg, because I'm 54 years old and I have lived through a lot of different jobs mm-hmm. and I've, been, I've lived through a lot of different circumstances in my life, a lot of them unpleasant. Yeah. And I know what I'm capable of. I know what makes me strong. And I also had the benefit of having access to a phenomenal therapist in my mm-hmm. 20s that I saw off and on for about 10 years, not 10 years straight, but as things came up and I didn't know how to handle them, I always went back, yeah. even though we'd close out and it'd been like several months or maybe a year since I saw her, I'd go back and say, I'm having difficulty with this. So I know what I'm capable of. So when the burnout really, I was crispy. Oh my God, I was so fucking crispy. Mm-hmm. I, I, in the middle of a shift, told my manager that I'm giving you my two weeks. I can't do this. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll talk to you later and I'll finish my shift and we'll talk later about maybe PRN or whatever, but I, I can't do this anymore. I just yeah. can't. Yeah. I, I've not done that ever in any job. Now I walked off a job and that was when I was in my twenties and I was even more of a hothead than I am now, believe it or not. And there was other circumstances for that, but this is the one time that I just, I couldn't do it, could not do it. But then after I got over the initial panic of what I had done in the middle of that shift, when I got home that night, the next morning I woke up and thought, you've been in worse situations. You're fine. And you know that you have got people you can count on and you know that there are certain things you're really good at. And I had had experiences being an adult literacy tutor back in my thirties that I love that I know I could go back to doing. Um, I want to teach again. I would love to be able to do that. And I have connections where, you know, I'm looking into it now. Um, And the fact that I had set up my private practice so that this was going to happen. I just didn't expect it to end like that. I had other plans to roll out easily from the ER work full-time into just a PR and status. So I have that advantage where a lot of persons such as yourself, such as other younger colleagues of mine, they haven't had that experience yet to know that, you know, fuck you, fuck your rules. I'm <laughs> out of here. Right. You know, which is kind of my mantra now after turning 50 mm-hmm. is that if it's, you know, an art, archaic rule that is a bet no benefit to anyone and it's hurting people around you fuck you fuck your rule yeah we need to figure out a better way to do that but the younger generations you guys don't have that yet and you guys have also lived through the turmoil of kind of like with gen xers all this upheaval emotionally as well for you know societal reasons as mm-hmm. well as economics so it's even more i think it's even more important for you to have this podcast to talk about this as yourself and other generations come up into the helping professions to understand you're going to have to protect yourself and you have to figure out ways that it's got to get better. There's got to be a different way to do this so that maybe it won't change overnight because a lot of it has government involvement for funding and everything else, but finding another way to meet the needs of the community as well as meeting the needs of yourself so that, as I tell my clients, 
if you're not good, you cannot give good. Right. So you have to figure out a way to protect that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not good, you cannot give good. And I mean, risk iris is the word irrespective of where I don't even fucking know, regardless of your role, <laughs> yes. right? regardless of what you do in your life, whether it is in the helping profession or you work in software or you're a um, community activist or public speaker, um, wanting to do good is a fantastic reason to want to take care of yourself and wanting to take care of yourself is a fantastic reason for wanting to take care of yourself because you are, because you are mm-hmm. a human who deserves to be taken care of and not spread as thin as butter. What's that quote from Lord of the Rings butter over too much toast. Yes. Like <laughs> you, we all, as we come into this, I, I don't know what, what, one thing about the pandemic that I really noticed is people are really reckoning with the way things have been and the way we want them to be work mm-hmm. life included. So being able to take that opportunity to say, well, sure, these generations before me had these certain sets of ideals about what it means to be a good worker. You stick with the same job, you do what they ask, you get that pension, you're good to go. That's not our world. It hasn't been for a long time. My generation grew up with that in the seventies and during the eighties is when it started shutting down. You didn't graduate from high school and go to a manufacturing job if you chose or couldn't go to college Mm -hmm. and you didn't want to go military. You had manufacturing. And I live in the Midwest where we had the big boys, you know, Case and Deer and Alcoa. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when things started getting wonky, in the eighties and things started shutting down. There used to be signs around the Quad Cities saying last person leaving the Quad Cities, please turn out the lights because mm-hmm. we were, we were shedding jobs left and right. Mm-hmm. So all of those things, like you said, it just, it kind of, it kind of adds up to where we need to go next. Yeah. Next. Because what used to be was never what it always used to be. It's always changed according to the context of our lives at that time. Where are we going now? The pandemic offers a huge opportunity for us to learn. We can change these things. We just have to figure out how to do it so it can be sustainable because what we're doing now no longer is. And it's been shown to us all over the place. You're right. People are just tired of what's expected and what's the reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we as professionals deserve that and our clients deserve that in whatever area of life, like we all are given to some degree or another, depending on our circumstances and where we are and what we're doing with our lives, our privileges, or, um, you know, wherever we are, Mm -hmm. there is some sense of being able to ask ourselves, why the fuck am I doing this? Like, who, who am I doing this for? Is it for me and my family and our benefit, the benefit of my community? Am I serving some other person or persons or corporation that doesn't actually give a fuck about who I am, what I need, you know, the, the beauty that I bring to this world, they don't, they don't care about that. Um, so even if, if action steps are not available to us right now, we have other things that we need to consider like our bills and our student loans and healthcare, all these things, there is this opportunity to consider how could this look different for all of us? How, how could the helping profession look different? How can mm-hmm. we stand up and say, fuck the rules? Like mm-hmm. we're here for the clients. We're here to do this work that benefits the community and the people that we're working with. 
how can we make it work for everybody without, you know, being told that we have to adhere to, you know, a workbook size packet of regulations and rules that only serve to benefit a certain number, few people, right? Like Mm -hmm. how can we do it differently? Yeah. And, and again, it's a complex issue because there Absolutely. are so many streams of revenue that have so many criteria and requirements yeah. that have to be met if yeah. we're even going to have a job and being able to provide for community need yep. because it is the least funded. But then, you know, how do you, how do you deconstruct that and rebuild it so it's better? Mm-hmm. And it takes one voice at a time, one action at a time until it builds this movement to show that. This isn't the way it's always been. Mm-hmm. We can move beyond this and now make it something better so that we can put something different in place that's a better benefit for everybody involved. Yeah. People get scared because they don't like change. You know, life is chaos. It is because everything that we have in the middle between chaotic events is what is manufactured by us to create that sense of stability. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who have white privilege, it's much easier, even if we're struggling with having enough money and working two or three jobs, it's still easier for us than persons of color. And I have family and friends of of color. So I I see what they go through and and what they experience. For me, even though I'm a female and I'm white, I still have better benefits than that. So how Mm -hmm. do we, how do we construct these systems? So everybody can participate who wants to participate, who have the skills and the training and the passion to participate in this. And I'm sorry, it's scary, but our, our, our normal before the pandemic was not the normal before 9-11, before the terrorist attacks in the 80s. I mean, a lot of people who are listening weren't even born at that time, but our homegrown terrorists that were going on, we had to shift the way our society saw things and what the new normal was then now. That's where we're at again. We have to create a new normal. But fortunately, there are enough voices and enough energy with our generations that are behind Gen X that y'all see the opportunities and you're not afraid to speak up for it. And you're also not afraid to put some energy behind it to try to figure out how to make it better and more inclusive. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I've been so thankful for all of the people who have been willing to come on to the podcast and and talk openly about this. Um, Because that's one of those things that I, I, you know, you learn about in school and you see in traditional ways of doing therapy and providing client care, this idea that that the therapist is that blank slate. We do not bring any, any source of personality or, or whatever it is to, to our clients. Of course, there's a line where, you know, you don't, you don't want to bring too much. You don't want to bring your issues to them. And that's not what this podcast is either. And I feel like, you know, I want to clarify that because there may be, um, you know, the general population who listen to this Mm -hmm. and feel some sense of like, oh, the therapists, we need to help them by not being such X, Y, and Z clients. That's not what this is. No, 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 not at all. However, being able to bring more of yourself, your personality, your style, um, some parts of your story to working with clients, to collaborating with colleagues, to talking about these issues, making it real making it a real face and a real voice, people who are sharing the real stories about how this stuff has impacted them. That's, that's where I want to go because when it's a faceless problem kept inside supervision rooms and to academic white papers, 
sorry, it's bullshit. Like we're not getting anything out of that other than the talking points of, well, here's what burnout is. It's fatigue and irritability. And you may feel isolated. Like, what is that? I mean, I know what that means, but like, what does that actually look like? Mm -hmm. How can we talk about it? How can we do something about it? So that's one of those things that I saw as, as something that can be changed as have other therapists out there in the social spheres in the public sphere, like they're sharing themselves to benefit others, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is a really cool development in the field is being able to, you know, be intentional about the way that you share yourself for the greater benefit of the community. Absolutely. I agree. And, you know, I really don't want people to think, oh, we need to be something different for therapists and everything else. No, 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 no. It's about us talking among ourselves and colleagues on a greater platform. Yeah. To let other persons who may be hesitant or even afraid to speak out Mm -hmm. about their experiences. And hopefully, you know, whether it's therapy or any other helping profession, again, if you're feeling these things, if you're, if you're not sure what to do, go talk to somebody, go reach out and speak to someone and try to figure out other ways and other opportunities that you can lessen some of that burnout and figure out what other options you may have in your life. Yeah. We're there to support each other. And even if it has to be an off the cuff kind of conversation with somebody, maybe you work with in the ER and you're in another helping profession and you say, Hey, Susan, you got a minute? Be like, yeah, what's up? Mm -hmm. Can we go over here? Sure. You know, go stand in a nook somewhere and just kind of talk about something. I'm not going to turn a colleague down. Yeah. I'm not going to turn anyone down who says I, I need help and I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm there, you know, if any, anybody I know is listening, you know, that you know how to find me, come talk to me and we'll yeah. figure something out. And I'm sure it's the same for you too, Meg, you know, we yeah. want to continue helping. I don't think that's ever going to get burned out of me. I think I would actually literally have to be dead. Right. I want to help people. <laughs> But again, like you said, it's not about shutting people down and not being themselves around us when they need to be so we can help them to the best of our ability. Mm-hmm. It's just knowing that we're here and we understand and you know, we're walking the walk and talking the talk. We're not just talking some bullshit you know, theory or foundation knowledge. Yeah. This, is, this is happening every day. Yeah. We're here we're in, and we're here, you know, we wanna help. We are here and you know, the, as you said, walking the walk, like, part of what I would always hope for, for the clients that I work with is that they would feel not just in the therapy room, but with their support systems, that they would feel that they could at a certain point come to their support systems and talk about what they're going through with people who feel safe to them, with people who can support them and provide that environment of care and community and collaboration, finding ways to help them out of that. Um, of course, for a lot of people, the therapist is that first step in learning how to use those support systems mm-hmm. if they've struggled to find that, but then being able to go out and, and hopefully use them. And so why would I not as a therapist want to also do the same for me and say, there's this vast network of amazing people who do amazing work in so many different areas of specialty, you know, like things that I, I probably wouldn't bring on as a specialty, but I'm so glad that these people do. They're awesome. And so many of us are like suffering in silence and saying, well, I can't talk about it. You know, I don't want them to think badly of me. Like, no, (laughs) 
No. <laughs> exactly. And you know, after turning 50, it was pretty much that whole fuck it attitude that I yeah. figured I'm putting it out there. It, mm -hmm. I don't care anymore. I really don't. Because I think by putting it out there, and I'm not talking about everything, but things that I see going on that everybody's kind of afraid to talk about. If I can put it out there and it allows one other person to say, oh, thank God, I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. And or reach out to me or reach out to an appropriate source for support to mm -hmm. get more help, then I'm, I'm happy I've said something. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that was the general purpose. Like I've told people this, this podcast is as much for me as it is for other people. And I do hope as with, you know, just being a therapist in general, if I can help one person, if one person can hear this and say, oh, that's me. And now I know that I'm not alone and that, Hey, maybe, maybe it is okay to talk about this with somebody. I don't, I don't actually have to just cry myself to sleep on a Sunday night and then pretend like everything is okay during the week. Mm -hmm. I'd be happy with that. I would <laughs> no? too. Yeah. Because yeah. it's heartbreaking to be alone in that kind of headspace. And yeah. there's no reason anybody needs to be there on their own. No, not at no. all. I mean, there's some good factors in terms of what they've gone through before and trying to be protective of themselves. But mm -hmm. unfortunately that also adds to the burnout that's going on. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, in remembering, I think it was the first episode, the one where I'm just talking about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I mean, I've said this to other people, but I, when I re-listened to it, I, I think I said the word lonely, or I said the phrase I'm lonely, like 500 times. And in re-listening to it, I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't even realize I was saying that when I was recording, but there it is that, mm -hmm. that isolation, um, generally feeling alone as a professional and then, you know, how, how that has affected my process of burnout and not wanting that to be part of it in the future. Mm -hmm. Like I may burn out again. And I hope, I hope that feeling isolated and that is not part of that process again. I hope that at least I can reach out and have somebody to talk to. So, yeah. and part of that loneliness too is in the self-isolation is about not wanting to burden your colleagues or your friends who are also in helping professions. Yeah. Because, you know, you, if you're feeling bad, you know that they may be also feeling bad. And why would you add your problems to their problems? Yeah. But I think, at least for myself, I can say that I don't find that an issue. If okay. somebody is really suffering, if they, and they're worried that they're going to add to what I've just talked about, that's not going to happen because I'm in a much better place now. Mm -hmm. And even if you have another colleague that maybe, you know, just as pissed off as you are about the nature of the gig that's going on, you know, all of my colleagues have always been there for me. It, it was a choice on my end to say, I'm not going to burden them with this. And that's why I was isolated. That's why I was alone and burning mm -hmm. out so badly. Yeah. You know, if they can't help you, then they may know of someone who may be a better fit to help you. And that's what the whole point of that is. And then that's why we're in the helping profession. And that's why I don't mean if a colleague says, I need to just talk to you for a few minutes. I need some help. I'm happy to do it. Mm -hmm. Because if I can't do it, if I'm not in a space that I can help you either professionally or personally, I'll find somebody who's going to be a better fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. And, and, and having these conversations, um, even though at points, I think both of us felt a little activated by the content, it's still, it's still good to just 
relate to another professional on this level and talk about, about this stuff and, and share the insights that we have, um, you know, especially cross generation, mm-hmm. um, you're Gen X, I'm Gen Y millennial, all that stuff, like being able to have those cross generational talks about, you know, what, what would it look like for somebody who is a millennial or a Gen Z or to say, fuck your rules, fuck this. Mm-hmm. I don't care. We're doing it a different way. And to have that perspective for, from somebody who's done that. So like, yeah, fuck it. I don't, I don't have time to kill myself over this. No. You know, and that's why I recommend the book on fuck your boundaries yes. by Faith Harper. She yeah. is phenomenal. And yep. It talks about all kinds of boundaries that also that if they're not in place, contribute to burnout. And I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. It's a phenomenal book. It's not yep. very expensive. It, it's a pretty quick read. Um, I think it's even available in an audiobook form. So if people mm-hmm. don't want to read it, they can listen to it. Yep. But I even for myself, learning as much as I have in my years on this planet and through therapy and the work that I do, I still picked up some things from her. And that's what I think also kind of contributes to finding the resources to help yourself out in addition to this podcast, which again, thank you for doing this mm-hmm. um, because it's been very helpful for me personally and also being able to pass it on to others who are experiencing some significant stress. You have other persons that are writing these phenomenal books that bring new ideas that I hadn't even considered. Well, most people don't consider. So yeah. find your resources and add that to your support toolbox. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I actually, um, I purchased that book uh, unfuck your boundaries and read through it. <laughs> I was like, yes, I very much agree. There's, there's some really good stuff in there um, yeah. for both personal and professional boundaries. Yes. So, and that's, and that's what I liked about it too, is because it, it covers the gamut of different boundaries that sort of need to be in place for us to be healthy human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we are we're almost at the end of our scheduled time, but what I do okay. like to do at the end of these kind of big conversations is just, just ask you um, if you were to leave the audience with like something to chew on or something to think about when it comes to burnout, um, what would you want them to know? Or what would you want to say to them? As you talked about earlier in this episode, I was about to call it a session <laughs> that burnout is the normal response to an abnormal situation of the stress we go through, mm-hmm. not to blame yourself for the way that you're feeling in terms of I've, I've done too much and, and I shouldn't have done this. You know, the self blame is not going to help anything. So please, you know, don't feel guilty or upset with yourself. Instead, turn to those supports that you trust and if you have to preface to them saying, I just need to get this out. And if you can't help me, I understand if you have ideas or someone else, maybe you better fit, please let me know, but I'm not obligating you with this information. I just, I, I trust you. Please let me just talk about this. Yeah. And having that open conversation with that trusted support, I think will do a world of good for persons because it's the isolation that hurts the most. I think in my experience and what from I hear from other persons that we don't want to burden others. So we bring it all in, try to cope with it. Damn near kills half of us. Don't do that. You know, you can call a crisis line too. You know, I know so many of us as therapists, like, 
oh my God, I'm broken if I have to call the crisis line myself. And that's not true. It means you're a human being working in a high stress type of profession. Yeah. And the crisis line is there for us as well as anybody else. You don't have to be suicidal to call it. You can just say, I'm having a really difficult time with this. Mm-hmm. Just to have somebody to talk to if you don't want to burden the colleague or friend or family member. Yeah. You know, get therapy. Mm-hmm. It, and, you know, and if you can't do it through the EAP, try to find someone that is close by, affordable, that you can go and talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, look at those resources online about for persons that are in helping professions and dealing with burnout. All those yeah. are helpful. They were helpful for me too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Having your own, your own therapist as a helping professional. Um, I've seen a lot of like memes on the internet about that, like, (laughs) but (laughs) you know, it's, it's good stuff. Um, I definitely would encourage that for anybody who's in the helping field to, to seek out that care and hopefully Mm -hmm. their therapist will also seek out a therapist. It's a whole big thing. It's great. (laughs) We're all there to support one another. That's what it, what, that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Susan, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I really enjoyed it. I feel like there was just a lot of good stuff here today. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Meg, because I just, again, admire your tenacity to keep this up and just didn't end it with one podcast and just casting it adrift and continuing to provide a platform for people to talk about their experiences so that other people feel less alone in dealing with it and hopefully reach out for help as well. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, of course. And I'm sure we will stay in touch. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All right, Meg, well, you have a great rest of your day and just follow up with me if you need anything else. Okay. All right. All right. Take care, dear. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode because I definitely did. Um, And I hope that in listening to this, you know, it it starts to inspire some conversation um, either with yourself or with your own family, partners, friends, all those folks who are in this with you, supporting you through burnout or trying to help you um, prevent ever getting there. I just, I hope that this can be a good conversation starter. Uh, Another thing that I am hoping is if these conversations have inspired you or if you feel like you want to join in on the conversation, I would love to have your voice added to this show. Uh, I am actively looking for people who are interested in showing up as guests on the show to either share their personal burnout story or to share uh, things that they have learned while working in the field, uh, helping others through burnout. And I just, I really want to encourage you, you know, if you've been thinking about it or wondering about it, wondering if you'd even be a good guest on the show, uh, the answer is probably yes. You know, I want to hear from you. I, I want to keep having these conversations so that we can keep pushing this forward and pushing for the change that we need. Other than that, if you enjoy the show and you're looking to connect off of the show, you can find me on Instagram at mentalstatuspod. Um, I'm always looking for feedback on the show. So if you have any comments or questions about what you heard today, 
you can send me an email at mentalstatuspod at gmail.com. If you like today's show, go ahead and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We are now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. So hit that subscribe button, leave a review, share these episodes, connect on social media, send me an email, do it up however you do. I just, I find it so valuable to connect with my listeners and I want to make sure that I'm hearing from you. Until next time though, I hope you stay well and take care of yourselves as best you can. I'll see you next time.